On the show today, Dr. Jim Lair, world-renowned elite performance coach, best-selling author, and motivational speaker. He's here to talk about what it means to lead with ethical and moral character and to share ideas for leaving a lasting legacy to better the world. In the opening of his latest book, Leading with Character, Dr. Jim Lair describes a pivotal moment in his life that happened when he was 16 years old. He considers this moment to be his first exposure to real evil in the world and explains how this experience would go on to greatly shape the career path that he would one day take. In our conversation today, Dr. Lair shares what happened on that day many, many years ago and how this experience would ultimately lead him on a path that would have him dive deeply into the world of human character, the good, the great, the not-so-good, and the evil. Dr. Lair is a world-renowned performance psychologist, co-founder of the Human Performance Institute, and author of 17 books, including his most recent book, Leading with Character, 10 Minutes a Day to a Brilliant Legacy. From his more than 35 years of experience in applied research, Dr. Lair believes the single most important factor in successful achievement, personal fulfillment, and life satisfaction is the strength of one's character. And he strongly contends that character strength can be built in the same way that muscle strength is built, through energy investment. He has worked with hundreds of world-class performers from numerous arenas of sport, including working with 17 world number ones in their sport or individual pursuit. He's also worked with leaders in business, medicine, and law enforcement, including Fortune 100 executives, FBI hostage rescue teams, and military special forces, including Navy SEALs and Green Berets. Dr. Lair strongly believes in the power of the inner voice and that the specific content of our inner voice itself is what determines the quality of our life. And in our conversation today, you will hear Jim talk about the work he has done training people to better navigate and control their own inner thoughts and inner voice in order to achieve their very best in life. So just a little more about him before we get into the episode today. Dr. Lair's groundbreaking science-based energy management training system has achieved worldwide recognition and has been chronicled in leading national publications, including the Harvard Business Review, Business Week, Fortune, Newsweek, Time, U.S. News and World Report, Success, Fast Company, and Omni. The list goes on and on. He's also appeared on NBC's Today Show, ABC's Nightline with Ted Koppel, the CBS Evening News with Dan Rather, and the CBS Morning News. As well, he was also on the Oprah Winfrey Show. 
Most recently, he was on one of the most popular podcasts in the world, The Tim Ferriss Show, a few months ago. In this episode, Dr. Lair and I take a deep dive into the major themes that he wrote about in his latest book, Leading with Character, 10 Minutes a Day to a Brilliant Legacy. And he talks about the power that personal journaling can hold in our lives when we stick with it, when we are consistent, and when we are very honest with ourselves. We unpack many of the themes he discusses in his book, including how to construct a powerful, robust personal credo that will become a source code for vetting all future ethical decisions and for helping to build a strong and meaningful life and leadership legacy in order to have the deepest impact possible on the world. In Dr. Lair's own words, when he describes a personal credo, this is what he says, The process of developing our personal credo begins with taking you deep within yourself, providing opportunities to reflect on who you are, what you value and believe to be true, and what impact you want to have on the world around you. It highlights areas of vulnerability, where you are at risk of failing to thrive in your roles, relationships, and other areas of your life and the potential disconnect between who you think you are, who you aspire to be, and how you want others to experience and remember you. In creating your personal credo document, you are adding the necessary level of thoughtfulness, deliberation, and intentionality to strengthening your character so that it enables you to become your very best self and achieve your desired legacy. I must admit, full disclosure here, that as I listen to Dr. Lair speak in this episode and the way he uses language to describe and articulate the things that matter most to him, I couldn't help but feel deeply moved and inspired to continue to make the changes needed in my own life to live with more authenticity, integrity, and purpose. He simply has this impact on people who are in his presence. In closing, I want to let all of the listeners know that my final question to Jim was about his parents. And if I could speak to his parents now, if they were still alive and they could see the amazing impact that Jim has had in the world through his work, what would they be most proud of? This seemed to be a special question to Jim and he started to answer it but then we had technical difficulties and most of his answer was cut out, unfortunately. So I was able to string together pieces of what he said, but much of it I missed. So not wanting to miss any of his words, I emailed him after I edited our podcast and I said, I really want to know what you said about your parents. The audio cut out. Would you mind just sending me a few paragraphs so that my listeners, when they get to the end of the podcast, They can hear everything that you wanted to say about your parents. Jim got back to me a day later, and this is what he said. My dad was a brilliant engineer, a total science devotee. I think he would have been very proud of the way I approach psychology in a science-based and evidence-based way. He would have been most proud of the positive impact my work has had worldwide. 
He goes on to talk about his mom, and he says, My mom cared deeply for others. She died at the age of 99 and was reaching out to help others until her final breath. She was an extraordinarily good person. She would have been most proud of my work in helping others to build their character muscles, as she believed that was all that really mattered in life. My parents were my greatest gifts. I really hope you enjoy this conversation as I did and share it with anyone who you feel will benefit from listening to it. I highly recommend you get your hands on a copy of Dr. Jim Lair's latest book. It is truly a game changer and I am genuinely honored to have had this conversation with him. And with that, let's jump right into this discussion with Jim sharing a bit about early life and the experience with evil that truly shaped the trajectory of his life and his work. Thank you very much for listening. So uh, I I came from a a deeply religious family. Um, I have a sister who's a nun currently, and my brother became a priest, and then he left the priesthood of Jesuit, and I was a product of Jesuit education for eight years. And... uh, Um, My mother and father were deeply religious, and I was kind of, I think, protected um, from the, you know, the the dark side of life. Um, I was introduced, my father was an extraordinary athlete, and um, his sport was baseball. And from the earliest years, I would be playing in the yard with my dad. And then he became the coach. I played baseball for nine years. And then I um, ended up hurting my arm. They didn't know about how many pitches you could throw when you were young. And I threw my arm out at the age of 14. And to this day, I can't throw a ball. Um, And uh, then I picked up basketball, became a pretty good basketball player. And then I played tennis my whole life and continue to play golf. Sport has been a huge part of my life. I have three sons and I have um, seven grandchildren and all of them play sports. And it's all I do now is kind of go from one sport activity to another uh, and watch them compete. I'm such a strong advocate of how sport in the right context can build character, can build strength, can build resiliency and perspective in life. And so it's a big part of it, but I I had a lot of jobs. My family was not, you know, particularly well to do. Um, And so I, I've always had a fascination with cars. And so I, every nickel that I could earn mowing lawns. And I mean, I did just about every dirty job on the planet, um, carrying hot for bricklayers and worked in a filling station. um, And then I worked in a graveyard where, it was watering lawns um, in a graveyard for you give you were given a certain number of lots that you were taking you had to take care of and you were basically rated on how plush the the yard was how well it was watered and everything else it was a pretty hefty job and then I was offered uh, the opportunity to make more money I was making ninety cents an hour and he said Jim how would you like to make a dollar 10 cents an hour? And I said, Oh my God, because I wanted to buy this car that uh, was going to cost me $200. And I've been saving since I was a little rascal. And I said, it was a Ford coupe. And I said, 
oh, yes, I might be able to get it this summer with that extra cash. So um, little did I know what I would be exposed to. Uh, as I describe in the book, Leading with Character, the supervisor of the cemetery introduced me to three uh, individuals. One of All of them were the scariest individuals I've ever met in my entire lifetime. And the person's eyes literally went right through me. He looked like he was crazed, uh, might have been on drugs. I didn't know what it was. But I was frightened to death because I'd never seen anything like that. And then the supervisor left and he pulls me up and pulls my shirt. And he says, who in the blank blank are you? And I said, no, I'm just here to, I'm making a dollar, 10 cents an hour. That's why I'm here. <laughs> and he said, well, I can tell you, you're in trouble. Trouble if you ever, ever um, tell anyone what you're about to see. And if you do, I will tell you, I have, I have killed 11 people. I've buried them all. You know, no one will ever find them. You will be my 12th. And I'm going, what? What are you talking about? So this was a grave digging detail. And what this was, was you go through a cemetery, you'll see a lot of times the, cemetery, the grave has caved in. And you'll see that something has happened either to the cement vault that has covered the casket or there's something caved in, the casket has collapsed. And they couldn't bring in a, a backhoe because it would tear things up. So you had to remove all of the grass and all the things so that a big lifter could come in and put down another cement vault on top. And, uh, but we had to clear it all out. And uh, the supervisor said, you're going to see dead bodies more likely than not. I hope you're not going to be afraid or that's not going to bother you. And I said, for a dollar ten, it's not going to be a problem at all. So, so we cleared out the grave. I could still have memories of the, of the person in the grave, floating in the grave. It was all because water had seeped in and everything, and the casket had broken, and the cement vault had you know, cascaded through the, um, the casket. And the guys jumped into the grave and started looting the grave, taking everything. Even they took belt buckles, rings, everything, anything of value. And I was so horrified. I literally, I didn't, I really did not even, I couldn't imagine what was happening. Mm -hmm. And after it was over, the guy pulls me up right about two inches from my, his face and said, if you make one word of this, I promise you, not only will you die, I'll find out who your family is and you will all be dead. Your mother, your father, whoever is around. And I just assumed he was, was the real deal. So um, I never told my parents. I went immediately to the supervisor the next day. and says, I can't. It's too hard. The workload is too much. I can't handle it. I'll, I'll take my job back. This watering lawns if it's okay. For 90 cents an hour. 90 cents an hour. <laughs> so uh, he says, uh, okay. He says, I know it's hard work. and But I went years in. That was my real first exposure to, to evil. And, and then I had this gnawing feeling that lasted for years that how many graves had been robbed and I did nothing about it, mm -hmm. that 
um, how, how many, you know, graves that could have been, that, that whole thing could have been stopped. And I really didn't step up and, you know, really try to make it right. And I thought about that for a long, long time and then went on with my life. But I often wonder, you know, was that a real reflection of the strength of my character that I didn't do something about it because I was afraid to get hurt or that he would hurt my family. So, so that was you, my, I put that in the book because it was a yeah. seminal moment in my understanding about goodness in human beings. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you. What fundamental question did you walk away with asking yourself as a result of that experience? Well, I asked myself, you know, really, are you strong enough to confront this? This is, this is not right. And I guess I would have to say I wasn't. And then I kind of went on in my life and I kept referring back to that and wondering, you know, how do I build my character so that if that kind of thing happens again, I don't just walk away because I see that happening in the world all the time. And I spent 10 years writing leading with character and the accompanying journal and the more deeply I uh, immerse myself in this notion of human character, particularly moral and ethical character, the more disturbed I became in terms of how easily hijacked and corrupt and how weak our character can be. And, uh, and so I, I tried to find a way and piloted it for many, many years on how we might build those muscles of character so that we actually can withstand some of the horrendous forces that we face. Um, and, um, and really it's a, it's a, it's a process of building strength, inner strength that is in the moral and ethical sphere in our connection, treatment of others. And if we don't do it, we're, you know, there's a number of researchers have shown that only 10% of the population is capable of holding a very firm moral and ethical line. And that means, um, 90% are, um, you know, are vulnerable to mm-hmm. whatever goes on. And you see it in politics. You see it in just about every sphere of life and business and uh, gaming, even in sports. And people are very quick to take shortcuts. And those shortcuts may end up later on in life becoming really, really serious offenses that could get them thrown in jail. So I have spent a lot of time, but it, it's sobering for me when I realize how uh, how vulnerable we are to having our moral and ethical kind of character sabotaged, um, really hijacked, bankrupt with with uh, compromises that may have really very very tragic consequences long term. And you you talk about this. This is literally in your book, Chapter 2, Why Good Leaders Are, are Vulnerable to Corruption, a Flawed yes. Morality System. And before getting there, Jim, you know, I, I want to tell you, like, I, I'm a big believer in kind of the universe unfolding in certain ways, depending on our life path and that certain things happen for a reason. And, and I listened to your podcast with Tim Ferriss. Mm. And and the quote in there, uh, and I want to read the quote to you that like really changed my life. I mean, I love quotes. I love reading. I, I have a journal. I journal all the time. But 
This quote is uh, my top quote and will probably be my top quote of all time. We have a family chalkboard wall. I have uh, two boys, 16 and 18. Um, one's a chef and a soccer player. The other is an avid golfer who wants to get a scholarship. And my wife and I do a lot of work around uh, a lot of inner work. And we try to get our boys oh. to understand the power of inner work. So the quote I want to share with you, and I just want to share a little story with that quote to uh, let you know why it means so much to me. Then I have a question to follow up. But the quote is this, the power broker in your life is the voice that no one hears. How well you revisit the tone and content of your private voice is what determines the quality of your life. It is the master storyteller. And the stories we tell ourselves are our reality. So why that resonated so much with me, and, and I gave you a little bit of my backstory when I sent you the original emails. Yes. Um, right. You know, I grew up in a very dysfunctional family environment with addiction and depression, um, mental illness. I lost two brothers, one to addiction, one to suicide. And in 2014, when my brother committed suicide, my family and I had to fly back to Canada. And, you know, I still get a little emotional talking about this, but it's part of my journey and I have to accept it. But that trip back to Canada was, was the hardest trip I've ever taken. And my inner voice and this narrative that I had created up until that point was, although I had done a lot of good things in my life, was very disempowering. And it was always, um, I always had this personal inner voice that was uh, about when something bad was going to happen. Like, what's good, what bad is going to happen next in my life? And I don't deserve happiness. When is the next shoe going to drop? Yeah, and I don't deserve happiness. And even though I'm happy right now and I have a great family, something's going to happen. And I couldn't help but have to really reflect on that inner voice and I did a lot of work after my brother's death and I realized that I had a pretty disempowering personal narrative. And although I tried, I meditated, I visualized, I tried to create this very positive narrative. I struggled because my habitual thought patterns were negative. So then I started to journal in a way that was scanning for good in my life and the power of gratitude. And then my personal narrative started to change and I felt a lot more empowered and I was looking for evidence to support the goodness in my life, you know? And then that quote to me um, really resonates with me because the personal narrative is huge. And I, that's what I want you to talk about is the, the power of, of story and the power of personal narrative and how you've learned to help people navigate very difficult times in their life in order to create a very positive um, personal narrative. So this journey that I've been on, we had this incredible living laboratory that spanned nearly 35 years. It's called the Human Performance Institute. And to date, we've probably had over 400,000 people go through and all these world-class performers from every arena of business and special forces and military, law enforcement, um, Blue Angels, Precision Flying Team, and as a psychologist, I never really, it, it, when I went through school, I really didn't have much to say about that inner voice. Um, but with all of the experiences I've had, I began to realize that there was something going on that was very, very um, 
powerful in a person's life. And that first of all, human beings are storytellers. That's how we connect to everything is through story. And I wrote a whole book called The Power of Story. And, and I began to put a lot of pieces together, both from my own experience and in the research world called narrative psychology. And um, the, more, the more deeply I immersed myself in it and the more I began to realize that we all have a, a public voice and we all have a private inner voice. And they don't always, you know, they're not always synchronized on the same, you know, um, plane. And we began to realize that this voice that no one hears but you starts forming very early in life. In fact, even the conversations a mother has with her child, um, and they say they're even believing now that even conversations that the child might be able to hear while they're still in the womb might be having an influence. So if you're, you know, upset, angry, you know, you have a lot of high levels of cortisol, if you're, if there's something about the child that you're angry about or whatever, but then all these messages began to take some kind of neurological path. And if it's consistent, by the time the child is five or six, they begin to realize there is a world that is intrinsic to them in their inner private world. And we've we've come to understand that that story whatever that story is is your version of the real world um there is a real world and then there's your story about it and you may be completely off but the voice that you develop is some kind of a, a, an accumulation um a synthesis of all the voices that were important to you in the course of your development and even if they were dysfunctional you tend to take them on because you want to be like them. You want to be independent. You want to be strong like an adult. And so what happens is if you have a dysfunctional voice with a parent or both parents or uncles or family or even siblings who are older or teachers in school or coaches, remnants of that start showing up in kind of bizarre ways. And um, the healthier that voice and by healthier, I mean, the more it becomes an extraordinary wise coach for you. That it actually, when you're looking for real great advice, you actually go inward, you listen to what others say, but in fact, you kind of, you look to this, this voice is your coach. And some coaches are horrific. They're awful. Some coaches are brilliant and, and always have your best interest at, at heart. And what we learned is that that voice is always evolving and always is amenable to change. And uh, so we started looking for ways to get that voice aligned with what they might say, what someone might say is the very best version of themselves as a coach. What would you say to someone who was in exactly the same situation that you're in and you deeply care about them? What advice would you give them? I call it kind of your personal Yoda that there is a place where you can go to seek wisdom if you've been working to get that inner voice really aligned with your deepest values, with your best self, with your the best character-driven person you could be. 
And it is absolutely amazing the kind of wisdom that that voice can come forth with. And it's also horrific about how demeaning and sarcastic and cynical and derogatory, you know, I used to catalog this with athletes and they would, let's say it was someone in tennis and I would have them wear a microphone and I would say, I want you to say out loud in the microphone verbally what you're saying to yourself the entire time you're playing this match. Uncensored. And they will, and they will say things like, God, I hate my forehand. My, whore, my forehand sucks. Mm-hmm. I am such an idiot. What's the matter with me? I never, I'm never going to get this. I'm losing to a duck. That means me, I'm less than a duck. And on and on and on, this terrible, terrible, critical voice that you are. And somehow you believe that, that you have to speak to yourself like that or you'll get lazy. But when you listen to a great coach, they can be stern. They can be strong. They can be um, forceful. They can also be kind. They can be very understanding. They can be inspirational. They can be the whole gamut, but they always are coming forward with a voice that is healing and helpful and stimulating you in a, to grow in a positive way. And so we started looking for ways to grow that inner voice so that it becomes a very reliable inner yoga. And we found the best way to do that, surprising to me, out of all the stuff we tried, was writing with your hand. That we would actually have people to write out in a journal all the things they would want. This is how they want their brain, their private voice to speak to them in these situations. And so um, it would be like, it's not a, a time to whine and complain and be upset and all that. No, this is a very different. If someone were to pick up your journal, all they would see is very the very best advice you could possibly give anyone is actually down in, in writing. And there's a number of researchers, probably one of the most... Uh, well-known as James Pennebaker, who uh, has begun to understand the power of, of journaling and narrative writing. And we found it a powerful tool for training the private voice and that you increase your awareness as soon as you sense the messaging is not aligned with who you would really want to be as a great coach, you, you instantly pull the plug and start a different narrative, a different way of talking to yourself, a way to encourage, or maybe you need to be tough-minded. Wait a minute, this is not who I want to be. I'm not, all right, I'm not playing well, but I'm not turning on myself. Let's get this train going here. So whatever it is, it's, um, and we, we found what an incredible gift this would be for someone, because this is the only voice you're going to have in your head until your last breath. And if you fight two wars all the time, one with yourself and one with the outside world, it's so exhausting. And you never find happiness because just about the time you start to feel good, this voice starts to erupt and tells you what a complete failure and a loser you really are. And one day everyone's going to find out. Imposter syndrome. And and I heard you talk about on the Tim Ferriss show um, this idea that you would never, ever in a million years want what you say to yourself broadcasted on the Jumbotron (laughs) in front of 80,000 people. And I never looked at it like that, you know, and we can be really critical to ourselves and 
um, you know, as a competitive golfer. So I played American football. I was a quarterback and a punter. I played all the way through um, university. And um, I, I wish I could go back in time and, and, and have this um, much more positive, uh, powerful inner voice. But at the time, it, you know, I, I succumbed to a lot of pressure and, and I hate to say the word choke, but I, I, I choked and, and uh, you would cover it up and just try to deny that it happened and push on. That was the way it was done in the 90s. But, um, you know, coming across your work, I know that you've done a lot of work in tennis and you have this in-between shot credo. And I think right. that's really powerful. But as a, as a, I play tennis, but I play a lot more golf. So the in-between shot credo also applies in golf. And, and that's, that's what I want to, that's what I want to get at. When, when you think of the elite athletes, golfers and tennis players that you have coached, even though they are the elite of the elite, the tip of the arrow, how do they navigate their own inner voice and how do you help them create this inner shot credo that is empowering that instead of thinking about snap hooking it into the woods OB because that's what I did on day two and I'm standing up there thinking I don't want to snap hook it what is are there triggers to begin a more empowering narrative like just take us through some of the work you've done and how you help people navigate that tricky water so it's interesting in golf golf is one of the most precise sports there is um ever created i mean uh, it's you know you're, you're like a gymnast only if a gymnast chokes he or she can break their neck i mean if you if someone got seriously hurt every time you snap hooked a ball out of bounds you know it'd be a whole level of difficulty <laughs> and pressure but the fact is even the, any subtle kind of increase in pressure if your brain goes off a little bit wild, it's going to manifest itself in your ability to execute and to strike that ball. Mm -hmm. And uh, so golf is a game of precision, almost like any other, unlike almost any other sport, because the degrees of precision, uh, there's just no freedom. You really have to be right there every moment, all in, in the right way. Mm -hmm. And if you have too many thoughts about mechanics, if you have too many thoughts about What's going to happen if I don't hit a great shot here? I'm going to miss the cut. If I miss the cut, on and on and on. Those thoughts can instantly change the way in which you strike the ball. And so we work this kind of dynamic in all sports, in tennis, the between point shot at tennis, the shifts in hockey, professional hockey, the, you know, uh, when you're going in, in American football, when you are going into the huddle and how you recalibrate, you actually reset the emotional computer. You get the brain reset properly. And in golf, you know, it was always the case when I started doing this work in tennis, no one ever looked at the between point time in tennis. They just looked at when the ball was in the air. The rest of it was dead time, downtime. But when you look at the amount of time that is in a match, um, you know, it, it can be as much as 60 or 70 percent of the total match time. You're not actually hitting a ball. So how can that 60 or 70 percent not have an impact when you are hitting the ball? And so I began to study all the best players, what they did between points, how they orchestrated it, what they did. With, and there was amazing similarity. Eyes controlled their walk, their posture, telling off, 
taking deep breaths. And then you see players who don't have that toughness. They're racing around. They have no in-between time. And the whole idea was for a long time that breaks are for, or pauses are for wimps. And I try to bring forth this notion, the power of the pause to actually make sure that you're hundred percent, the pause is a gift so that you are, if you take full advantage of it, it can help you reestablish balance and, and readiness for the next competitive cycle. And, but so often this is when the, the private voice goes haywire not happy with the last shot, you hit a bad shot, now you start ripping on yourself. In golf, about 99% of the time, if you took the total time, you were not striking a golf ball. You're walking, you're, you're studying the green, you're moving around. Most of the time is has nothing to do with striking the ball. So that course management, but really it's not course management, it's management of you, your own self-management that is actually the critical factor. So how you manage um, a mistake, and they occur all the time. If you ask a great golfer, how even though they won the tournament, the final round, how many shots did they hit perfectly? They had a really perfect shot in that round. They'll probably say, well, maybe two or three. Two or three shots were hit perfectly, and they won the tournament. So, you know, it is an imperfect sport, and you've got to figure out how to compete with what you've got and it's just a gift to the gods when you get perfection, but don't plan on it. Make it be a surprise, and you're just going to compete with whatever you have. So you start training that voice. You know, professional golfers have caddies. Caddies become coaches. They are part of the environment. They're with you every minute. They see everything, and they become a powerful vehicle in either accelerating this reset or making it worse. If you have tension with your caddy, if you, you know, if they say the wrong thing, if they actually make a comment that really upsets you, you know, you're not going to do well on that next hole probably. And so this happens all the time in golf. And so what I used to spend a lot of time training caddies on trying to help them to make sure that they're saying the right things and that the player, no matter what happens, interprets that in a way that actually connects privately to their own inner coach and that that inner coach begins to be the most reliable. So I always want the, 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 the golfer to pull the club, the, uh, to make the decision, to be, to decide not to blame the caddy for a bad, mm-hmm. the caddy's there maybe to give you the distance, the wind, make a recommendation, and then you pull the club and you take responsibility. If you don't have a caddy, you take responsibility, do the best you can. And then, there isn't a whole lot you can control, but you can stay with your process. You can give 100% of your best effort. You can follow your routines, trust what you do, and manage the process, manage the mistakes, coach yourself the way you would coach a world-class player if they were someone you deeply cared about. Coach yourself in the same way. So if that wasn't a jumbotron and all the conversations you had with yourself were made public, you'd be very proud of how you manage that course with um, in terms of your self-management. So golf is a, it's an incredibly challenging sport from a mental psychological. And that's how we kind of look at how hard a sport is psychologically is how much downtime do you have? You know, if you're always running and jumping and tumbling and whatever you're doing, you don't have really a whole lot of time to get in your own way. You just, it's all action oriented. 
that actually makes it a little easier. And, uh, and if it's a team, sometimes on team sport, you can feed off the energy, but in sport like golf or tennis, you're basically on your own baby and you got to figure it out for yourself. And so that even, you know, really accelerates um, the importance of making sure that the coach that you have in your head is properly trained and get you the best you possibly can. So Jim, do you train your elite athletes, business people, CEOs, whoever it is in those moments? Is it what you say to yourself in combination with the questions you ask yourself? Do you train, uh, train them to ask better questions of themselves in pressure filled moments? Absolutely. So the, the one kind of universal accepted kind of reality in sport is that you want to be fully present in the moment. And you want to kind of trust whatever it is you're doing with a golfer. You might have a very simple swing thought and that's it. And you have your target, you know, exactly what you want to do. You visualize the shape of the shot where you want it to bounce. You're very clear on precisely the brain operates based on input. So, and stress or high levels of cortisol, these adrenal cortical hormones scramble the brain a little bit because it senses fear and it's not real sure, you know, what, what is this all about? Why, why, why is there such uh, you know, uh, an accelerated sense of fear and alarm and it's supposed to be a game and we're supposed to, so all that scrambles, all these habits that you've created that, you feel pretty confident in. So you really have to figure out how to keep that at bay. And that the only stress-free moment is the present moment. Mm-hmm. You look into the future, you get fear and angst. If you look in the past, you get anger and frustration. But if you're in the present moment, you're just executing. So what you're trying to do is build enough habit strength so that you can kind of go on automatic pilot. And then if something happens that actually is out of the ordinary. You have an extraordinary lie or you're in a divot or the wind is extraordinarily brutal or whatever it is that you, that the brain is not so overworked with thinking everything. It actually has some reserve and you know, the it's, it's called the cognitive load. If the cognitive load is like overwhelming and you're having to think about all these things, you're having to kind of work it all through, where my hands, how my finish, all that stuff, then there isn't much left for really responding in the moment of what I need to do. So you want to be basically competitive geniuses are on automatic pilot because <laughs> they've honed in all these important habits, these rituals that become kind of the sacred channel that enables them to do the great things. And then they also have a little bit of awareness about, I need to shift here. I need to change this a little bit. And they, and the, but for the most part, they're in the present moment, trusting what they're doing. And then after it's over or after you make a mistake, they may make a quick correction, visualize the correction, and then walk back, get back down to the next hole. But they have more time to reset and get themselves positive, coach themselves into a great situation. And, you know, you have to be extraordinarily resilient to be a great golfer. And the fact is, 
everyone has periods when it's such a precise sport where you're pretty good and then you're not so good. Mm-hmm. You can't stay at a peak level forever. So if you look at all the best players, whether it's Rory McIlroy or any of them. Rory just threw his three wood into the trees. <laughs> Did you read that? No, I, I, but I've seen it with every golfer. You know, you, you have this expectation you're going to be genius because you've dominated the world and now you're having trouble making cuts and you may end up, you know, having to go back to tour school. You know, it's like there is, it's such a delicate balance. So the more you actually understand what it takes and you realize you, you can't be great all the time. You manage what you have. And if you have greatness, it will come. But if you beat yourself up and you destroy your, uh, your five wood, you know, now you're going to have to play without a five wood and you may need that five. wood. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I've, I've got a, a very good friend. He's actually the, the coach of my son. His name is Sean Clement. He's made a huge difference to my, my son's uh, game. And he's, his daughter was a soccer player in university and struggled with some really tough, hard ass coaches that were really yeah. unkind, uh, horrible. In fact, so she developed this kind of fear of, of coaches and, and then she decided to pursue golf. So she's down to like a one handicap. Now she hits wow. the ball 270, 280. She's amazing. Um, wow. but she really beats herself up in competition because she doesn't have a competition experience right now. Last weekend, she was leading the club championship, went into the final round and she ended up losing. And um, when you have such uh, enormous talent like that, when you work with people who have such enormous talent, but the inner voice doesn't match it, how can you sync that up? What's the first step to sync that up to get them on the right path and get the ball rolling in the right direction? So there are these neural networks that have been formed and they've been forming for years and probably the influence has not always been positive by the coaches that have been very critical of her. And so she tends to be more fragile and she's going to have to rework those neural pathways and neural networks to give her a little different um, kind of way of organizing the stress, organizing, you know, bad shots, organizing. So she doesn't panic. She doesn't beat herself up. And my um, go-to strategy for that is to actually have them go and, you know, really begin to coach themselves with their hand and how they're going to deal with the tough times and how they're going to think. They're actually creating uh, new ways of thinking about, you know, failure or mistakes or challenges or pressure and, and to realize, you know, just like it, it took a long time to, to hone that drive where she can drive at 270, she hasn't been working on her brain that much. Her mm-hmm. brain has just kind of shown up. And if she doesn't work to get that, that's really the supercomputer in her life. That controls everything. And those motor neurons can be trained. She can myelinate those with, with repetition over and over again. But she also needs to myelinate how she's thinking about what's going on at any moment and how she's actually um, really digesting disappointment and bad shots. And uh, the more her body sees this as really a very kind of threatening arena, and it's an arena that she's going to beat herself up, 
She's not going to be relaxed. She's not going to really enjoy it. It takes all the joy out of it. And her genius will really have a hard time surfacing. But she needs to have patience and realize what she's doing. She's rewiring her brain. She's building a competitive brain that was proper, was improperly um, trained in some of the early coaches. And so even if she didn't have bad coaches, the competitive brain is something special. It's not, it's very abnormal to hit a duck hook, a duck hook into the woods and just instantly let it go and go up and then have no issue with it. Let, you know, the next shot on this, it's that that's completely, it's almost nuts, but that's what great competitors have to do. It's almost like it never happens. I remember in the masters when Ernie Els at the masters took a 10 on the first hole and, and he still made the cut. He just said five, six putted. <laughs> He's, no, I think he eight putted. I don't know what it was. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And that was the first hole and he still made the cut. Yeah. But that tells you how resilient he had to put it in perspective. And, you know, for all of us, when we three putt, we beat ourselves up unmercifully. Ernie Els is one of the greatest golfers in the history of golf. And he, he probably had at least a two triple putts on the same hole. It was a first and not just some goofy tournament. This is in the masters and the whole world is watching. So put that in perspective, everyone, you know, it's like we all can take, you know, comfort in knowing that even at the highest levels of the sport, the sport often asks us questions that are extremely difficult. We have to come up with an answer. And he kind of smiled. He kind of put it back in his pocket and went back to work, and he still was able to find uh, some comfort and and really res- resolution to what was happening on that first hole. But yeah. there is a way to train that brain, and you cannot be normal and be a great golfer. Your brain is, you know, what's normal is to get upset, angry, furious, and throw your bloody club into the lake. That's a normal response. Mm-hmm. What's abnormal is to act as if nothing happened, correct it, go on, and actually still believe that you're going to have a great round. Mm-hmm. That's, comp- that's a trained response. And the more you work that territory with your hand or visualizing it or just literally just having a conversation with yourself, with other people, listening to tapes, there are lots of ways to make those neurological uh, pathways come to life. You have to... You have to, in some way, invest energy in those directions. And when you do it enough, the brain changes. Hmm. The, cha- the brain is very malleable. It's much more malleable when you're young. But as you get older, even this concept of neuroplasticity will occur even in the later stages of, of old age. And so the brain exists for one reason. That's to give you what you want and need. You just simply have to send it clear signals. This is what I want. And that's why before a golfer hits a shot, the, the clarity they have with what it is they want the brain to, the, the number of calculations the brain has to make to execute that perfectly, it's pretty sensational. But if you feed it bad information or crazy information, or you have a lot of cortisol floating around to scramble it, it makes it a lot more difficult to get what you want. But a competitive grain brain is a thing of wonder and it is it's like a designer brain that you decided you wanted and you spend endless hours training 
and eventually you got it. Yeah, that's that's beautiful advice and a perfect segue into your book. And that's what I want to dive into. And I and I am telling you, I'm going to be your biggest um, buyer of the book because, you know, Tim Ferriss likes to ask, uh, what book do you most gift to people? And your book is the book that I now buy for everybody that's important in my life. And and I will continue oh, to do that's it. That's a fantastic compliment. Thank yeah. you. So I, I see the book behind you. I showed you my copy of the book. Um, I've gone through the um, personal credo journal. I'm on my second round because I feel like I need to do this again. I need to make sure that I was. Fantastic. Um, I, I've, I'm on my third <laughs> and I still, uh, I yeah. still, every time I go back to it and I read what I've done, uh, one of the things I often get is who the heck wrote that? Did yeah. you really write that, Jim? I go, yeah, that, book, that came from inside of me. And the kind of thoughtfulness and sometimes I don't want anyone else to read it because it gets pretty raw, Yeah. even though it's supposed to be pretty positive. But um, there is so much more depth and dimension inside of us if we just find a way to pull it out. And we're amazed yeah. at what we're the insights and the wisdom we have about life and about ourselves and about who we want to be in life yeah. and how we want to carry the mantle forward and what we want to leave behind. And that writing for me uh, and all the people that we tested this with over multiple years, it, it, uh, I'm, I feel very grateful for having had this living laboratory to test this. And I'm just hoping people will go out and do the work. If you don't do the work, you can't get it to happen. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. And in my second round going through, I now realize I, I censored as much as I was not trying to censor and filter what I was writing. I was. So the second time, yeah, the second time I'm doing it in this journal now, this blue journal you see, and I'm, I'm rereading and I'm saying, in addition to what I originally wrote in the first draft, this is now what I think I used to think this, I now think this. So uh, let's give the listeners some context. I think every educator needs to, to go through this process because it will, make them better at what they do at impacting the lives of the young people they teach and coach. Uh, so I'm going to introduce this at conferences that I speak at and with teachers that I uh, coach and work with. But uh, Jim, I just want to start uh, with the book is leading with character 10 minutes a day to a brilliant legacy. There are seven chapters. Uh, so I'm going to quickly read the chapters. What does leading with character mean? Chapter one, chapter two, why Good Leaders Are Vulnerable to Corruption, a Flawed Morality System. Chapter 3, Who is the Architect of Our Character? Chapter 4, Who Are We Becoming in the Chase to the Top? Chapter 5, The Bricks and Mortar of Credo Building. Chapter 6, Embedding Your Personal Credo and Supporting It with Habits. And then the last chapter, When Leaders Become Heroes. But I want to start with the four fundamental questions you ask people to think about right out of the gate, which is, what is your impact so far? What has happened for better or worse? Have you represented yourself well? And have you proven worthy of your sacred gifts? And then you fast forward and take the people right to their memorial service mm. and, and force them to think about what people will say about them in their memorial service. So let's just touch upon that first and then talk about what you feel the definition of legacy to be. So, yes, I, you know, it's so interesting. Um, 
I have this whole ethos around facing the truth and navigating in life. First of all, you have to know where you're headed. And then you need to know where you are now relative to your destination. And facing the truth is very hard for us um, because it's oftentimes not pretty. It makes us very uncomfortable when we really look with intent on what's really going on. How honest are we? How caring, how loving, how kind? How do we treat people, particularly people that have no ability to get back or the valet attendant or the waitress or waiter that, you know, screwed up the order or just seemed to be a little disengaged and how, how you you know, what about dealing with that person? Um, so I, I spent uh, quite a bit of time trying to understand how can people begin to put themselves, could you fast forward your life and imagine what people would have to say about you at the end of your life when you're gone? And let's invite everybody because every single life that interacted with yours, you had some impact. Some impact might have been very little or it might have been quite strong, positive or negative. But, you know, we have an impact. Our energy, our life connects with others. So what if we had everyone, your children, your parents, um, all the people, all of your enemies, all of the people who you never got along with, Let's get the full Monty of everyone that you interacted with in the course of your life. And let's, let's listen to what they would have to say about you. And let's listen to the valet attendant. Let's listen to the person who went through your office and picked up the trash and how you interacted with them or didn't. Um, the groundskeeper, the people who clean your, um, who deliver trash. You know, they, you had some impact because you've met them multiple times. And uh, so when you, when you start listening to what all these folks might be saying, and then you create the sense of this is who I was in terms of the impact I left behind on the lives of other people. Let's try to get our arms around that. Has your impact been mostly positive, negative, or highly mixed? What has been the impact of your life on the trajectory, on the lives of those around you that you touched? And that's what legacy is. And if we're more conscious of that every interaction we have, they're going to take away something. There, there is an impact of some kind, either positive or negative or maybe neutral. But um, there there is a, you're leaving a trace, a trace behind from every encounter you have. And this notion of leading with character is really around understanding what that impact is and, and what is the ground you want to hold in terms of your treatment of others. Um, and particularly, um, how this is going to be viewed at the end of your life through the prism of, the voices of everyone who came to know you. So I try to create this urgency of what, listen to these voices. What are they saying? What is the truth? Let's get to the truth about the impact that you've had on planet earth when you were here. Don't color it. Let's look at it. And then let's go back and say, wait a minute, 
your life is not over yet. Maybe it's okay for you to make some changes and maybe it's really, really opportunistic for you to recognize that I don't have to fulfill this path that I'm on if it's not really going to give me what I believe is the, the legacy I want to leave behind. That I'm going to start making adjustments now and try to be a little more aligned with what I believe my best self is, the highest character that I want to have. And I always, you know, it's a very powerful, it, it sounds a little cheesy, but I can tell you it's the most, one of the most powerful things you can do is to put down who you are at your best, write six words down or eight words down when you feel like you are at your absolute, when you're most proud of who you are. And then write down eight words that you will have on your tombstone that reflect who you really were when you were here. If these, were the, if these words were truly representative of you, this would be the highest kind of exhilaration that you could possibly have. This is who you really wanted to be while you're here. And then let's move back from that because all of those will be your connection to others. It's not about, well, I won four gold medals or I, you know, I scaled 12 of the 14ers on planet Earth. Or what. It's not that. It's what the legacy you want to leave behind when you really look at this deeply. It's all connecting to other people in some way. Honesty, integrity, inspirational, positive, um, always there to help, always reaching forward and trying to make the world a better, whatever it is. And so when you go to that place, it's like a taste of reality and it kind of repositions, it changes the furniture in the room enough. So, you know, you realize if I don't make some course corrections now, I'm not going to have those words on my tombstone. I'm not going to be at my best that much. And in a real sense, in many ways, I will have failed. I've got to make changes and I'm going to start today making sure that I hold myself accountable for the things that I truly believe will make the difference in my um, assessment of who I was when I was here. What role does self-compassion and self-forgiveness play in that process? So we spent a fair amount of time looking at that. And it's very hard to have compassion for others if you don't have compassion for yourself. It sounds, again, a little maybe, um, you know, so often in the culture today, you know, compassion and kindness are viewed as weaknesses. And self-compassion and self-kindness are really big weaknesses. You got to be tough. You got to be strong and all that. But I'll tell you what we found. Even we worked with sumo wrestlers. We worked with, you know, world championship boxers and everything else. Uh, people who are in very tough arena, Marines, Navy SEALs, hostage rescue teams. And there is a balance. And in the book, I talk about balancing these muscles of mm -hmm. character, performance, and, and ethical and moral. You have to have kindness and compassion, but you also have to have tough-mindedness. You have to have both. But if you have no compassion for yourself, it's going to be very hard for you to really generate compassion for others. So your understanding of compassion actually starts with yourself and understanding you are human 
understanding how there is appropriate time for you to kind of understand how to be kind to yourself. Just like confidence has to be balanced with humility or you get arrogance. And if you don't have enough confidence, you get insecurity. Have to be balanced as well, or you get kind of a skewed dimension. And it also sets you up for dysfunctionality. So that was a, a very important part of our search to try to understand how we are built as human beings. How, how, do we, how do we actually understand what this character or spiritual dimension in humanity really is? And how do we bring that forward? How do we make that the strongest part of who we are? And those were, you know, I still am wrestling with those kinds of questions. And for me, they are some of the most important questions that we face as human beings. You know, when I think of everything you just said, and I believe so strongly in the the power of journaling, and I believe so strongly in critical self-reflection and vulnerability. And when we open ourselves up and we speak our truth, we give permission to other people to do the same. And, And then people start sharing, and then you realize that our stories connect. Even though you think somebody had a perfect life, when they really start to peel back the layers and they open up and they share what they went through, you begin to make strong connections. So to me, my life has been changed through human connection, through playing team sport, through bonding with others, through opening myself up to, um, you know, fear of judgment, but then still going forward and and speaking my truth and trying to speak more of my truth uh, in the work that I do. And it's, it's really helped me, but I know I still have a long way to go. Um, So I know that we promised to keep this at an hour. Uh, There's so much more I want to talk to you about, but I I respect your time. Um, Can you tell people where they can find the book leading with character? Yeah, so um, it is available on Amazon, um, and you know a lot of a lot of different you know bookstores have it. But um, you know, pro- probably Amazon on a worldwide basis might be the easiest way to get it. Okay. Um, and uh, but I, I love your comment at the end there. Um, that you know, the more the deeper we get into understanding others, the more we realize we're all the same. Mm-hmm. We, our lives are pretty much the same. I don't care how wealthy you are or how, how many conflicts you've had in all kinds of areas. We all are seeking to find a sense of connection to other people in a way that's fulfilling. And we really want to make the world better. And uh, for me, I, started as a psychologist and none of this came out in my training as a psychologist. It came later in all the work that I've done. And I'm so appreciative for the opportunities I've had to understand a lot of this. There's so much more that we don't understand. And there's some researchers. I so appreciate the work researchers are doing to try to bring more light to this, but we do know that purpose and building one's personal credo and understanding of what you're going to reference when you make a moral and ethical decision is yours and not somebody else's, that this is a document that you intentionally created. And it is, um, it is almost like this is the most important document you will have for the rest of your life. And it will always be in motion rather than just defaulting to 
some nebulous, I don't know what I'm referencing when I make a moral and ethical decision. Now I know it doesn't make it any easier necessarily, but you have a lot more confidence that whatever it is you're deciding, you've done your work and you can live with your choices. And so I'm hoping that that will be um, one of the takeaways that people have for the book. And it, it's not for the faint of heart. It is not. <laughs> this is tough stuff. This is tough, flogging, sledding. It's heavy lifting. And if you want to write a really light read where you just kind of read it and go away, I guarantee you this is not for you. That's why I'm in 2.0 right now. <laughs> this is not easy. And, but the rewards are deep and they're life-sustaining. They stand issues about yourself, whether it's your private voice or your sense of ethical kind of intelligence um, and how you connect to the world of others and wars and everything else, you have a very different prism and it really helps you to understand that we are all flawed. And if we don't work on these flaws, we can end up in a really, really tragic place. Yeah, absolutely. And Jim, just to close the show, I'm, I'm going to put everything in the show notes where they can find your work and, and uh, okay. in addition to other books as well. I want to ask you one final question. I usually ask, um, what do you hope your legacy to be? But I, I know that you've done a lot of hard work to figure that out. So instead, I want to ask you if your parents were alive and I could ask them what, you know, you've seen Jim's life, you've seen the work he's done. What are you most proud of? What do you think they would say about you? Well, that's a great question. I've never really thought about that specifically. Um, psychology is far more interesting. I think he would be proud that I approached this in a very kind of science, really important. Uh, this wasn't just a kind of, you know, interesting path, but I really tried to, to carve new ground and tried to do my work in a way that represents, you know, a, a really responsible approach to understanding human nature. And I think my mom would have been very, very happy that, that and very proud of the fact that I have kind of, and, um, I really still believe that um, whatever I've accomplished, um, it's been through the work of others and the understandings that I have, I've learned from others. And I think she would have been proud that I've pretty much stayed the course and I'm still Jim Lair. I haven't changed a whole bunch, even though I'm, you know, I'm in the limelight a lot and I've, you know, my work has gotten a lot of accolades. I don't think I've changed much. I'm still a searcher and I don't believe I have all the answers. And I'm sure I'll have that feeling until my final day. And I think she would be pretty proud of that. Oh, that's great. And uh, what's the strongest part of your golf game right now? Uh, my short game. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I have, you know, because I've played years of tennis and all these sports, my short game is really good. Um, and my driving is good. My irons, particularly long irons, are not so great. And uh, I love the quote, if you're in a storm and there's a lot of lightning, hold up a two or three iron because even God couldn't hit that one. <laughs> even the, the one iron back in the day, the, the one iron used to be uh, in play. Um, hey, Jim, I want to thank you very much for your time. It's, it's been special. You're, you're, a, you know, you're such, I, I call you a mentor of mine because you've been a mentor from afar. Um, and I share your work all the time. And uh, I would love to meet you one day in person, but I, I, I'm honored that you took the time to be on my podcast today. 
no, I did this because I, there's something about, I, I read a lot about what you're doing and about your podcast. And I love the questions. I love your authenticity or sincerity. You've done your homework. You've read the book. You've done it. You're on your second go around. Yeah. And I'm more than happy to, if someone does that kind of work, I'm in, I'm all in. And so thank you for having me. I feel honored to be on your podcast and I hope we can help some folks. That's what my hope, that's what my um, my real desire is that we can make a contribution here. Yeah, thank you very much, Jim. I'm just going to close off the show and I just want to say goodbye to you. So everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Dr. Jim Lair and I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Andy Vassily.